Chapter Fifteen of the Story of Avis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Story of Avis by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Chapter Fifteen. Only the eye of God can see the universe geometrically. Man, in his infirmity, sees only foreshortenings. Perspective is, so to say, the ideal of visible things. As man advances towards his horizon, his horizon retreats from him, and the lines that seem to unite in the remote distance remain eternally separate in their eternal conveyance. The point at which love ceases to be, per se, an occupation, is seldom more distinctly defined than the line which divides the fire of the sunset from the calm of the upper sky. Avis's love for her work was as imperious as her love for her husband, and as loyally stubborn to distraction. Said one of the greatest women of this age, success is impossible, unless the passion for art overcomes all desultory passions. Avis found herself, by dimly shaded gradations, approaching a condition of serious unrest. She was like a creature in whom two gods warred. Her nature bent, but could not break, under the divine conflict. Yet at this time she looked across it with firm, clear eyes. All would come right. These little household obstacles experience would disperse. They loved each other. What could she fear? The winter passed dreamily. When her husband came home on the bitter nights, her eyes turned to him full of a trust as unreflective and as much in the nature of things, it then seemed, as the trust of the lily in the summer wind. He liked best to find her in the dark, opaque reds of their little parlour, and in the mood of the open fire. She sat with her books or her sketching, or in the shadow at the soft piano. The usual little feminine bustle of sewing he missed without regret. Women fretted him with their eternal, nervous stitch, stitching, and fathomless researches into the nature of tatting and crochet. He rather admired his wife for sharing so fully his objection to them. Avis was that rare woman who had never embroidered a tidy in her life. "'It is as much of an exhaustion of the nervous centres to my wife to sew as it would be to me,' he used to say at this time, "'and as much, if not more, of a nervous waste. She shall not do it.' It did not occur to him—how should it—that Avis's exemption from this burden was a matter requiring any forethought or management, and he expressed surprise on learning, by accident one day, that the price of two portraits which she had painted, her only finished work, that winter, had gone to cover the seamstress's bills. Avis did not chatter about such things. She had a fine power of selection in her conversation. Had not some one well said that conversation is always but a selection? Which he admired. Certain moods befell her that winter from which he stood far off. Sometimes, when the wild weather deterred her from the brisk walks which her sturdy out-of-door habits had made a necessity to her, he found her pacing the house, up and down, from attic to cellar, in a fitful, and what, in a woman of less self-control, would have been a fretful way. He spoke to her, and received courteous but uncommunicative answers. Her eyes had become two beating rebels, for whom his tenderest thought could find no amnesty. Usually at such times she retreated to the studio, which was now established in a manner in the attic, and worked fiercely till the early winter dark dropped down. Then he would come up and call her, unless he were too busy. If he came, he found her calm and gentle. She leaned upon his arm as they went downstairs. 
Avis left the unfinished sketch or painting patiently. She said, By and by, after a while, I must wait a little. She was still able to allure herself with the melody of this refrain, to which so many hundreds of women's lips have shaped themselves trembling, while the ears of a departed hope or a struggling purpose were bent to hear. Life had become a succession of expectancies. In each experience she waited for her foothold upon another, before finding her poise. There is more than a fanciful symbolism in the law which regulates the drawing of the human form. We must be able to take a straight line from the head to the feet, or our picture topples over. Women understand, only women altogether, what a dreary will-o'-the-wisp is this old, common, I had almost said commonplace, experience. When the fall sewing is done, when the baby can walk, when house-cleaning is over, when the company has gone, when we have got through the whooping-cough, when I am a little stronger. Then I will write the poem, or learn the language, or study the great charity, or master the symphony. Then I will act, dare, dream, become. Merciful is the fate that hides from any soul the prophecy of its stillborn aspirations. The winter was over. In the elm-tree outside of Avis's chamber window a robin was building a nest, with an eye that withdrew itself like a happy secret. Avis watched the bird with a blind sympathy. She held out her hand, and the little creature ate from it after a decorous hesitation. She felt a lowly kinship with the brooding, patient thing. In May her baby was born, a son. Avis was a little sorry for this, but she did not like to say so. It seemed a rude disloyalty to the poor little fellow. But when his father asked her if she were not content, she said, "'If I had a daughter, I should fall down and worship her.' It was a delicate, ailing baby, and seemed at first a mere little ganglion of quivering nerves. It cried a great deal. "'I don't see what the child has to cry for,' said Avis, looking a little offended. The baby's grandfather was there the day that she said this. He put on his spectacles at the precise angle, and with the peculiar rub which he reserved for a pet philosophical problem, and with a lordly reverence, took the child's fingers—poor little sprawling antennae—upon his own. "'What Aristotle and Leibniz and Kant,' he said loftily, "'would have yielded their lives to know, you ask, Avis, over lightly. Philosophy will be no longer a fragment, but a system when it has commanded the psychological process by which one infant is led to weep. Aristotle might have had a chance to find out, Avis thought, if he could have had the pleasure of studying her child for the first three weeks of its life. But the professor watched the child gravely. He had a deep respect for a being who could baffle Aristotle. "'That baby has cried ever since it was born!' Avis wailed one night, exhausted with sleeplessness. I wish somebody would take it out of my sight and hearing for a while." "'Why, Avis,' said her husband, "'don't you care? Don't you feel any maternal affection for the little thing?' "'No!' cried every quivering nerve in the honest young mother. "'Not a bit!' Perhaps indeed she was lacking in what is called the maternal passion, as distinct from the maternal devotion. She was perfectly conscious of being obliged to learn to love her baby like anybody else, and really she did not find the qualities which that unfortunate young gentleman developed during the early part of his existence, those which she was wont to consider lovable in more mature characters. She felt half ashamed of herself for being the mother of so cross a baby. She had supposed that children were gifted by their Creator with some measure of respect for the feelings of others. 
This child seemed to be as deficient in it as a young Batrachian. It mortified her, like an evidence of ill-breeding. Avis had never lived in the house with a baby, neither had Ostrander. Their vague ideas of the main characteristics of infancy were drawn as, I think I may safely say, those of most young men and women are at the time of marriage, chiefly from novels and romances, in which parentage is represented as a blindly deifying privilege, which it were an irreverence to associate with teething, the midnight colic, or an insufficient income. Avis herself had not escaped the influence of these golden, if a little hazy, pictures. While she knew, or supposed that she felt, many things not expected of her, and failed to feel others which it was proper to feel under the conditions of maternity, yet she cherished in her own way her own ideals. But of these she did not talk, even to her husband. These it was only for her child and herself to understand. Over these, as over her wedded fancy, nature drew a veil like those casement screens, which to the beholder are dense and opaque but to the eye behind them glitter with a fair transparency through which all the world is seen divinely new. And then motherhood was a fact which had never entered, as in the case of most women, upon her plans or visions of life. It was to be learned, like any other unexpected lesson. But the spring was budding, and in the robin's nest at the window the fledglings chirped, and the tender air stole in on tiptoe and her strength waxed with the leaping weather, and God made people to love their children. So it must all be well. The kind of dumb terror with which she had lain listening to the child's cry gave place to a calm exultance. Now, in a fortnight, in a week, in days, to-morrow, she could be at work. To be sure, the baby was a fact, but he was matched by another, the nurse. From so fair an equation it was not too much to expect a clear solution. She came out into the sunshine with bounding heart. The soul of the spring was in her. Her most overpowering consciousness was one of deep religious fervour. She thanked God that her life's purpose, for which she believed He had created her, would be more opulently fulfilled by this experience. The baby would teach her new words to tell the world—his sad, wrong world that the birth of a little child had saved. She felt a deepening respect for the baby. She kissed him fervently. It seemed singularly obtuse in him to double up his seriously inartistic fist, and put her eye out with blind and smarting tears. "'I hope you like him, Avis,' said Coy, a little doubtfully, one day in June. He was so preeminently uninteresting compared with her baby, that she really felt some uncertainty on the nature of Avis's feelings, and then Avis said so little. "'Certainly.' said Avis, looking up rather wearily from the week's wash which she was sorting, a snowdrift fatally deepened by all these little garments whose name and nature were still a mystery to her, and if the truth best be told, produced more a sense of irritation than of poetry on her fancy, since she did not see that her love for her son required that she should know whether the scallop on his flannel petticoat was ironed the wrong way. "'Certainly I like him, but I don't understand why, when he is put on the bed, he doesn't go to sleep. It is very inconvenient.' crying so, when it is proper for him to take a nap. Why, said Avis, lifting her grave eyes, I find him a great deal of trouble. Coy, who thought it quite in the order of things that her baby should be three months the older, since naturally Avis couldn't get on—she never had—in any real thing that had got to be done without her advisory counsel. Coy gasped, and felt it useless to remonstrate that morning, even about the little shirts which poor Avis was understood to have trusted the nurse to sew. We hear and think much of the marked days of life, 
the signal stations of gloom or gladness, the wedding, the birth, the burial, the day that lent its ear like a priest to love's first confession. One may dare assert that amongst these, days which quiver to their roots, whene'er you stir the dust of such a day, there strikes in the lives of most of us one deeper than they all, that day when we heard the first bitter word from lips which would once have breathed their last to win our kisses. Do you not remember how the sun struck out the figure in the carpet, the refrain of the bird that flew singing past the window, what the pattern of the sofa-cushion was on which you sat gazing, how the Parian Venus tumbled from the bracket, when, going out, he slammed the door, how she swept away to the piano, and the little polka that she played with bent head to hide the tears. You turned that carpet, you covered the cushion long ago, for economy's sake, you thought. Ah, me! It must have been for economy, too, that the broken Venus was never mended, but lies hidden in your bureau drawer, and let me hear you play that little polka, if you dare." Avis's baby selected one July night, when the thermometer stood at ninety degrees in the heart of the little town, to cry, with a perseverance worthy of so noble a cause, from nine o'clock in the stifling night till three in the exhausted dawn, doubtless for reasons which were metaphysically satisfactory to himself. Philip Ostrander, not finding in them any distinct bearings upon the natural sciences, was, as might be expected, less of an enthusiast in the matter. He took his pillow and vacated the scene of action. He had sometimes since reached the stage at which a man first perceives the full value and final cause of the spare room, an institution not created, as we have crudely supposed, for a chance guest, but for the relief of the father, whose morning duties clearly require a full night's rest. It certainly was plain enough that Mr. Ostrander could not conduct the morning recitation if he had been kept awake all night, and his weak lung forbade his carrying the baby, Avis said. The poor girl wore that terrible July out as best she might, in the deepening reserve which motherhood only of all forms of human solitude knows. On this particular morning she came down late and wan. The fierce, free fire of her superb eyes had given way to the burnt-in look of anxious patience which marks a young mother out from all other young creatures in the world. Her husband sat with a disturbed face at a disorderly table. "'Avis,' he began, without looking up to see how she was, "'the cracked wheat is soggy again.' Avis for a moment made no reply. She could not, for sheer surprise. The husband's tone, breaking in upon her exhaustion of mind and body, gave her something of the little shock that we feel, on finding our paper give out, in the middle of an absorbing sentence. When she spoke, she said gently, but with some dignity, "'I am sorry, Philip. I will speak about it.' "'And the cream,' proceeded Philip, "'is sour. The steak was cold, and the coffee will give me a bilious headache before night. I really don't see why we can't have things more comfortable.' "'We certainly must, if they are so very uncomfortable,' replied his wife, with rather a pale smile, striving, she could hardly have told why, to turn the discussion into a jest. "'But you remember you didn't marry me to be your housekeeper, Philip?' Philip Ostrander pushed his chair back without a smile, folded his napkin with the peculiar masculine emphasis which says, "'I can hold my tongue, for I am a gentleman, but it is doggedly hard work.' Then, turning, with averted face, murmured through his closed teeth, Yes, I remember. I don't know what we were either of us thinking of." With this he took his hat and strode away to college, in the sacred summer light, to conduct the morning prayers of a thousand perceptive and receptive boys. 
Avis sat for a little while at the uninviting breakfast table. She tasted the cold coffee, and sent Julia away with her sympathetic, if a little bitter, tea. She felt too weak to eat. She looked out into the elm-branch, and saw the empty nest which the May robin had left, and dimly thought what an unpleasant look it had, and dimly thought she would get Julia to pull it down. It seemed quite necessary not to think of anything except the nest. Her eyes burned feverishly. She threw herself upon the lounge, and lay with both hands pressed upon them, still as the coins that press the lids of the dead. Presently she rang the bell sharply, and in a strung, strained voice bade that the nurse be ordered to bring the child. He came, poor little fellow, looking as wan as his mother, but as innocent of having made himself an unpleasant fact in the family life as a tuberose is of yielding too strong a sweetness. Avis caught him with something not unlike the passionate love which Arya may have felt for the dagger, and hid her broken face upon the baby's neck, as if she would have hidden it there forever from all the world. When Ostrander came home, he sought his wife all over the house. She was not to be found. The cook said she took her hat and went out an hour since, and the nurse explained that in throwing back the nursery blinds to give the important message which the cook had forgotten to deliver to the grocer's boy, she had thought it likely it was Mrs. Ostrander, as she saw, just beyond the top of the cart, turning Elm Street to the beach. Ostrander pursued her impatiently in the blazing sun. He perceived the flutter of her dress far down against the lighthouse, and when he had overtaken her, he found her creeping along in the shadow formed by that great gorge, so memorable to them both. She did not see him or hear him, and so crawled along in an aimless, dreary fashion, which it gave him a nameless terror to see. Her figure looked so broken, so beaten and weak, that it for the first time occurred to him that the effect of a little conjugal quarrel upon a nature like that of his wife's was not altogether a calculable one. His own words, once spoken in that spot, came back to him as he made his penitent way along the purple gorge, looking from torn side to torn side. It was a perfect primeval marriage. The heart of the rock was simply broken. Had Avis wrought herself into that frenzy of wounded feeling in which weaker women have courted death, as a man with lacerated spinal nerves courts the moxa? He overtook her without her hearing his light step, and manlike, trusting to the sensation to interpret the emotion, barricaded her with both arms, and folded her to his shamed and sorry heart. But Avis glided from his touch like a spirit. Her bent figure heightened grandly, and her unwon maiden eye seemed to look again from a great height, down upon him where she had swept and stood upon the jutting cliff. Ostrander at that moment felt that to have been permitted to gain the allegiance of the heart we love is but the most tentative and introductory step towards the durability of a happiness whose existence depends upon our being found worthy to retain what we have won. And in feeling this, he felt deeper than he could reason into the joy and pain and peril which welled two individual human souls into the awful fusion which we call marriage. But he said only, Avis, I was a brute. No, she said bitterly, you were only a man. Then repenting, with swift nobility, she came to him. Now it is I who am wrong. Forgive me, Philip. You? He gathered her tenderly. She did not repel him. She was worn out with the strain of the night and the glare of the long walk. She did not cry, but she lay in his arms with a dry, sobbing sigh which alarmed him. He caressed her passionately. He sought her pardon in the soul of every sweet sign love had taught him in its first dizzy hours. She submitted quietly, but with an unresponsiveness which afterwards he remembered with disquiet perplexity. 
the scar which an unkind word leaves upon a large love, may be invisible, like that of a great sin upon the tissues of the repentant soul, but for one, as for the other, this life has no healing. Avis did not choose to talk about cracked wheat. There were other things in the world to say, and it was impossible to express, without giving them both useless pain, her inherent, ineradicable, and sickening recoil from the details of household care. And Philip, distraught with his deepening responsibilities at the college, naturally ceased to inquire so often how matters went in the studio. Avis faced her circumstances with such patience as she could command. A weaker woman lets conditions override her, be the lash a divine frenzy or a chronic neuralgia. Avis sadly turned the tense muscle of her strong nature, now to secure a gracious home. The thong which has stung the aspirations of all women, since Eve, for love of knowledge, ate and sinned, goaded her on. She said to herself, "'It will be a matter, at most, of a few months. When I have mastered this one little house, life waits, and art is long.' She made haste to be wise in wisdom that her soul loathed, to clear the space about her for the leisure that her patient purpose craved. But sometimes, sitting burdened with the child upon her arms, she looked out and off upon the summer sky, with a strangling desolation, like that of the forgotten diver, who sees the clouds flit from the bottom of the sea. End of chapter 15